All right, hello and welcome to the first proper episode after the pilot of Real History, a podcast about history-based uh, fictions, especially film. Um, my name is Hugh David, I am your co-host and co-presenter. Uh, with me is Agent Jenna Papen, <laughs> <laughs> co-host and, co and um, uh, co-presenter and co-producer, I should say, of the show, because oh. uh, after all we work on this together. So yes. hello Jenna. Hi. And um, we are here today to uh kick off our series uh on bunkerzilla with an episode with an odd choice for a history related podcast but it's a choice we both agreed on today we're going to look at captain america the first avenger let's talk about uh captain america the first avenger in the context of uh history itself mm -hmm. and a uh, warning to everybody uh and this goes for every episode we do massive spoiler warnings not just for the film itself but in this case also for the mcu the marvel cinematic universe itself and possibly for some of the comic runs as well yeah yes now jenna let's yes. uh talk briefly about uh the historical elements. Well, actually, no, before that, let's talk about why we wanted to do this, because yes. it, I think we can both agree it seems like an odd choice. Yeah, especially as this is our first proper episode. Yes. Um, it's not a pilot, but mm. I think after doing Chernobyl, we wanted something a bit fun. Yes. Uh, and campy and just Chris Evans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hayley Atwell for me, yes. Um, um, same for me as well. And oh, uh, Natalie Sorry. Dormer. Yes. So. Yes. Yes, true. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> so we wanted some entertainment, but also I think it's important to recognise that uh, we could be talking about any number of um, films or TV shows or books about World War II. Um, but actually, as someone who teaches, I have to point out that I am teaching, I have taught now generations of kids who, to, who, know, who know this film before they ever come across Saving Private Ryan or Black Band of Brothers or The Thin mm. Red Line or any of these other famous films about that. And so because this is quite often the first experience for some young people of a fictionalised version of World War Two, I think that is actually a really important reason for you and I to address it. Yeah, and it's like I was saying to you earlier... Um... I showed my daughter, who's five, some of it, because she sat down and watched some of it with me. Mm. And although she was not happy about the villain, because it, it was like, ah, scary, which mm. is completely understandable, mm. it's technically that's her first like interaction with Second World War. Mm -hmm, so, exactly. Um, this is exactly why we, it's important we address it from a historical context. It is often, even as pure entertainment, the first thing that you come across. If we're going to introduce children um, through entertainment to history, then it behooves us to consider uh, what kind of image, we, what are we telling our children about history, itself, the history in question? Yeah, because especially... For I'm happy for Evie to... Um, my daughter's named Evie. I don't think I've mentioned that before. Mm. Um, I'm quite happy for her to watch an MCU film because mm -hmm. although there are 12, it's that kind of borderline. She can watch it with me. I'm quite happy for that. Mm. Um, while I wouldn't show her something more Second World War orientated, if that makes any sense. Because yes. that would be probably too violent or well, 
too much. Like... It's the difference in rating between <clears throat> PG thirteen or PG twelve, where it's parental guidance. In other words, yeah. it should be for twelves. But if you're a parent, and you bring someone in younger. That's your choice. Yeah. Uh, versus fifteen. Yeah. Which is a clear marker. There's no debate. Parents don't get to say, "Oh, I want to bring in a fourteen-year-old." It doesn't work like that. And no. a lot of most of the films you're talking about that are more serious are fifteen and up. Yes, that is true. So I think actually your your point falls very neatly into the way we classify films in Britain and to some degree in America. Um, so that, and that, and that's well, a very the good point. Twelve A was only brought round because of superhero films, because <clears throat> of the fact of they were marketing all these toys towards kids with the films being out. And then they weren't able to go see the films because there were 12. And at that point, the 12 was a hard sticking point. You realise it was before that? It was Spider-Man, I thought. Nope, it was before that. 12A came about in Britain because of Jurassic Park. Spielberg himself flew the head of the BBFC over to California yeah. for a nice little visit. <clears throat> and while he was there, he happened to show him the whole of the print of the film. <laughs> he's working on, uh, which was had nothing to do and apparently was not influential in any way on the decision that the BBFC <laughs> then took to create a 12A because um, and of course I I think Jurassic Park absolutely destroys the idea of what a 12A should be to begin with when the lawyer gets eaten sorry that is freaking nasty and that is not a 12 maybe we should let kids see it that is a hard 12, if not a 15. And I, I, there was a lot of debate that year when it happened because everybody was like, oh, come on, this is so obviously rigged. You just gave in because of the commercial aspect of it. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that was it in place. And of course, the 12A has been pushed harder and harder ever since. The classic example is The Dark Knight. Yeah. You know, when the Joker kills that guy with a pencil. Oh, God. <laughs> it's cleverly edited. It's technically a 12A. Yeah. Technically, you don't see anything. But you don't see anything because we all know where the pencil went. <laughs> I was going to say, Hugh. Yes. What year did uh, Jurassic Park come out? Uh Oh, crikey. It was so long ago now. Because um, I saw Jurassic... Uh, um, hang on a minute. Because I remember, I remember reading the book. Uh, 93. Yes. It's the first one. Right. Can you remember what year I was born? Uh, 86? 88. 88. Well, there you go. But we were speaking in historical terms. You were talking was... about no, Spider-Man. No, no, I was going to say, um, I went to see Jurassic Park at the cinema. Yeah, exactly. Because the 12A <laughs> made it legal. Yes, my dad was like, I want to go see this, so took me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is and this is the this is the point. You were a perfect example of how that works, you know. Whereas whereas the first Sam Raimi Spider Man is two thousand and two. Yeah. Yeah. So historically, well, that's you... just when I remember it becoming a big deal because of the fact of they were pushing toys about these films and yeah. they were twelve. No, no, no. So. absolutely, absolutely. The toy element was key, but but they'd already locked in the twelve A ahead of time. That was. Yeah. That was Spielberg all the way through. He he knew who wanted to see dinosaurs. Well, yeah. Um, dinosaurs are cool. Yeah, but dinosaurs eating people off toilets, not necessarily cool. <laughs> no. um, you you laugh, Agent Pateman. But, um, <laughs> right, so uh, now that we've justified why we want to talk about Captain America, let's talk, talk about, about Jurassic Park. <laughs> let's talk about Captain America, the first Avenger. So, yes. t uh, talk, 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 tell us about the history side of Captain America. So, uh, 
It actually first appeared in 1941. Uh, it was done by Joe Simon and Hang on, Jackson. slow down. Sorry. Not it. The film we know came out more recently. Do you mean Captain America, the character? Yes. Sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> just, just, I'm just making sure our readers, our listeners are following readers. us along. <laughs> yes, our listeners are following us along. Yeah? Sorry. Yes. Don't be. Don't be. Just keep, it, keep them in mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Captain America as a character, go on. Sorry. Yeah, so yeah, he appeared in uh, 1941. Um, he was done by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. And I think a really important thing to note about both of them is that they were Jewish. Yes. Um, now, this was a comic book that came out before um, the Americans had actually entered the First World War. Um, First World War, Second World War, sorry. Um, And the actual first cover, which is quite famous, but for those who don't know, it is a very traditional looking uh, Captain America in his very bright blue uniform, punching Hitler in the face, (laughs) which is a very striking image, literally. Um, And... Because they hadn't entered the war yet and they um, there were people in America that openly supported Hitler and what he was doing, uh, they actually had to have the police protect the two artists um, mm. at their office because they were getting death threats and stuff like that, yes. which was just insane. And <clears throat> But at the same time, the comic proved popular and... Mm-hmm. It was popular enough that when uh, America did join uh, the war in nine months' time after Pearl Harbor, um, it was being shipped out to soldiers as basically cheap and disposable, moral boosting, mm-hmm. um, yeah, propaganda basically, because uh, yeah. they could see themselves in the soul in Captain America, mm-hmm. and then it was selling well to kids in America because they could see themselves as Bucky. Because mm-hmm. at the time he was Captain America's ward for a better term, kind of thing. Yeah, well, it was the, 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 that. That's partly a uh, a tradition that existed in comics at the time. Yes, of, look at Robin. So. Yeah, exactly. It was a way of trying to. It was a marketing thing. We know our readers are this age, therefore we'll put one of them in the series, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense yeah. legally or, or logistically. Um, but also it's quite important in the Captain America context because it does represent the fact that quite very young men were signing up. Yeah. You know, people <clears throat> lied about their age. Yes, they did. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a First World War example, but uh, Walt Disney actually falsified his uh, birth certificate so he could go help in the First World War. Yeah, I mean, that... World War One is full of examples of that in yeah. particular. There's le- there's a little, there's a, there's slightly less of them in World War Two, but there's still quite a few. Yeah, because people are yeah. like, uh, <laughs> we've seen what happened this time. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's the history of the comic and the character. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's interesting because he uh, has changed over the time. Of course, like after the Second World War, because his origins are so to deal with the Second World War, because he was basically created to fight Nazis, mm. he was kind of in a limbo after the Second World War because of um, characters like Superman. The origins weren't just, let's go punch Nazis. They were mm. generalised. So um, <laughs> the best thing I've seen after um, 
Second World War is that he became a commie smasher. It well, logically, that. yeah, exactly. You know, patriotically <clears throat> themed superhero. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, exactly. And but all, that wasn't the only thing. I mean, they they still started like trying to figure out other things. There's the point where uh, he leads. A, you know, he ends up because Bucky's character gets shot and wounded in a 1948 story. Captain America's then girlfriend Betsy Ross becomes superhero and Golden Girl, so they become a team. Mm. You then get a show. There's a point where they do a couple of horror suspense issues under Captain America's Weird Tales. Okay. You know, I mean, it just, it just, and then they had, then they stopped that series, and then they tried again to revive it in the 50s, which is the Commie Smasher one. Yeah, and then didn't work quite as well. Marvel bought it, and yes. um, he became an Avenger, and then he got his kind of character trait that wasn't punching people uh which was uh basically that idea of a person out of time the person kind of not from this era kind of thing so one of the clever things about the way stanley and jack kirby brought him into the marvel universe the marvel universe they were creating in 63 is the idea that um Captain America. So, so it's it's actually a it's actually a Fantastic Four story. Oh, Johnny okay. Storm, the Human Torch. He's seeing an exhibition being performed by a guy claiming to be the returned Captain the the, the, the Captain America coming back from retirement, a famous hero of World War Two and fifties and the fifties. But it ends with him being revealed to be an imposter, <gasps> a villain called Acrobat <laughs> who Torch has defeated before. Mm. So at the end of the issue. Johnny Storm digs out an old Captain America comic book showing you Steve Rogers. And there's a caption in the final panel at the end that says to readers, if you, would you, basically, are you interested in seeing more Captain America? Yeah. You, you, you can just imagine Stan Lee's style doing, the, doing that, you know, faithful Marvel believer. You know? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the thing is that they, the response was so good that they then formally reintroduced him in Avengers issue four. Yeah. The following year. In they pulled out the ice. Yes. Yeah, he's he's he was in an experimental drone plane, goes down the world. See, part of what fascinates me about this, leave, and, and this is just speaking as a historian into comics. Mm. Part of what fascinates me about this is the way Stanley is take and Jack Kirby are taking a completely different company and creator's set of stories, and then saying this is the history and backstory of our universe yeah. that we're creating. You know, like everyone goes, oh, it's Marvel. It's all one universe. But I actually know there were multiple comic companies, multiple creators and stories. Mm. And that actually this all bringing them, the bringing of them together into a single universe is not a simple process. Um, And I love that genius idea, that leap to to go. It's both practical. Hey, we don't have to invent something. It's already there. Yeah. (laughs) But it's also such a cool meta idea. This bunch Um... of comics from 20 years earlier is actually the history of our comics yeah and you also get um not only the kids who were the traditional readers at the time but you probably got like their parents going oh i recognize that and picking exactly. it up as well exactly so. the, the exact same way the mcu now works with yeah. parents who read the comics and kids who watch the films and i think or parents who watch the anim- the cartoons and then the kids who watch the films so i think <laughs> you're absolutely right you know what we see here in the history of captain america the character is actually what is now being we're seeing history repeated mm. it, partly for, partly because commerce is is driving both efforts partly because the creative thinking is driving both efforts um but let's pull this back now then to 
what Captain America the First Avenger does. When the MCU was first being started uh, and Marvel Studios was busy testing the waters, every single film was a risk. Yes. They were an independent studio, despite the fact they had major label distribution. and they Paramount were at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. And yeah. they were taking on characters that had not sold to other companies in the 90s when they were bankrupt and they were trying to, you know, get some cash in. Yeah. And so they sold X-Men and the whole, everything to do with the X-Men to Fox, everything to do with Spider-Man to Sony. But they... And Fantastic ha- Four as well. Yeah. And they hung on to these. However, yeah. when they decided to kick it off themselves, the success was immense. You know, mm-hmm. I remember going to see Iron Man as at a preview because I remember looking at the trailers thinking, I can't believe they're doing Iron Man. He's just not one of the big names and I, I like him I'm a yeah. fan but I couldn't believe they were doing it and then I saw the trailers and I was like oh my god Robert Downey Jr. is perfect yes <laughs> and then I, we saw the film itself in a preview and it just killed the audience were laughing and cl- this is an English audience normally yes. they're quiet throughout the whole thing yes. they were laughing <laughs> and cheering and clapping and enjoying themselves and Kim and I walked out at the end and we were like that was great Mm. That was really good. And and I was like, well, and then there's the little, you know, bit at the end. With uh, Nick Fury. <laughs> the ultimate version of Nick Fury. That was the thing that kicked, that really struck me about all of those early movies is, is that they are not simply regular Marvel timeline stuff. They're borrowing from the Ultimates. They're yeah. borrowing from recent uh, storylines. You know, Warren Ellis, who is one of my all-time favourite writers of anything, be it comic books, novels, TV, mm. he... His storylines, his 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 particular storylines for his Iron Man miniseries are absolutely crucial to the idea of that first film because he's the one who resets it with Afghanistan. Yeah. And yeah. So there's all these pieces of the puzzles feed and comics feeding into the film. Because um, Tony Stark's original was, uh, origins was Vietnam, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the other thing that fascinated me about this, <clears throat> it took me two or three. I had to watch the film. It was only as the films went on this really hit me. Was how they relocated. Fat John Favreau's stroke of genius was to take, even though he's from New York and Marvel are from New York, mm. the stroke of genius was to reset Iron Man in Hollywood. Yes, because audiences around the world are familiar with California and Hollywood on film. Mm. It's also che- it's also where they can get hold of the special effects crew. It's cheaper to shoot. There's there were tax incentives, but all but you know it allowed them to go. But, but you know it allowed them to go. He's not just this kind of slightly stuck up New York industrialist. He became a play. He became a, a California playboy, which yes. is of course you know fits the mold of Robert Downey Jr. And, um, <laughs> just and that. I, yeah, but but I thought that was really clever because yeah. it allowed audiences who don't aren't familiar with Marvel to associate with it. Mm. Um, I mean, as a fan, I was kind of like, oh, it's not New York anymore. But then, you know, that's fine. They, they, they'll do, they did that later on with the TV shows. But, um, but for now, but for the film, you know. So anyway, I'm going off for a very long tangent here. Let me pull this back. So the, the point thing is, I'm is that make... we both love the MCU. So. We do. The, the point I was trying to make is that when Captain America was announced, and it was announced that it was going to be a period piece, there was a general sense of, oh, this is where Marvel screw up. This is you know, It was like Thor's coming, there's going to be magic. Oh, this is where Marvel will screw up. And then it yeah. doesn't. It hits big. Although there's still people who hate that first Thor film. And they're mad. And they're wrong. Why? Why? I it's know. got Chris Hemsworth in. It's got so much more going on. <laughs> it's, it's, you know. and, then, and then you get... And then that film sets up Captain America. Yes. And then Captain America 
works. And Captain America, I have a, a lot of friends of mine who are not comic book fans, who are not particularly superhero fans. They rate Captain America the First Avenger as the best film of the MCU to this mm. day. I think there's a lot of justification for that view. And I think part of the reason the film works is because it understands not just the history that it's setting that it's setting the fiction in yeah it also understands what we as an audience if we're certainly if we're a little bit older what we what our fictional understanding of world war 2 is yes because joe johnson who directed directed captain america vs. avenger worked on the raiders of the lost ark he directed the rocketeer which is one of the great unsung uh, comic book adaptations from the 90s mm. which is also world war 2 era he knows what he's doing with these. He understands that you need hissable, punchable villains. You know, he understands yes. there's a certain kind of Victorian pulp element to this. Yeah. That carries on into 20th century pulp fiction. And so he doesn't spend time giving us super motivated, deep characters on the bad guy side. Everyone's written in thumbnail except the people we need to know about. Mm. And the people we need to know about are not the bad guys. We need to know about the good guys. And he yeah. gives us them in depth. You know, from the moment we see the super thin, weedy Chris Evans and Buff Bucky yes. in New York, we get who they are, why they're the way they are, the friendship they have. You know, the first time Hayley Atwell walks on screen, we know that to be who she is with the rank she is given, she's got to have gone through hell. Yes. And still be going through it. And be a total boss at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> you know, he, he, these characters are more than just thumbnail, even if they're paint, they're sketched quickly. Yeah. Um, and our own knowledge of what we think we know about the history of the time allows us to A, recognise the problems Peggy would go through, but believe that Peggy could still do it. Yes. Because there were women doing great, amazing things, particularly within resistance groups, secret service, etc. You know, we know so much more now about the role of women in that period. Yeah, um, I mean, both World War One and World War Two were massive periods of change for women because it allowed women to properly enter the workforce. It allowed it was kind of the especially world war one was the start of the beginnings of being able to get on an equal footing we're still not quite there but it's getting better which is brilliant so um but yeah the in women's history in big brief commas the first world war and second world war have to be considered as landmark periods basically and without those it's we would have got the vote one day, but I think that really pushed towards getting the vote and starting that slowly knocking back of all the social taboos and stuff. So yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, with World War One, it, it 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 it's it's a number of things, including the sheer it, focusing on England specifically at this point in the conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, the sheer numerical loss the, the the sheer number of men dead who never came home meant that you had two particular social consequences one is loads of women who would have normally married as a way of look, finding life security had no one to marry mm. literally you know, all half the men of the marriageable age are dead or gone in that village or town or wherever yeah. secondly the jobs those men would have taken on in offices 
you know, in in towns, in companies, whatever. The, the men are again they're dead they're not there to take those jobs on yeah. so and those two provide a solution for each other if a woman can't marry she needs to go and you know take a, take on a role yes and earn money and 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 that in its that has two aspects to it uh one is as you say it puts women in 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 social situations that they weren't in as commonly before and that starts to break down the taboo of them being in that yeah. and secondly it gives that the, it, it provides an economic reason for the vote because it means they're starting to earn money and pay taxes yeah, and at that point it becomes a lot harder for the governments to limit the franchise to solely property owners or what have you you know it had the, 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 there is a natural sort of evolutionary point there in terms of how societies work that mm. means that they'll at some point have to give them some say because they are providing taxes so coming back to captain america the first avenger yes. this is so this is exactly it we these are things that we know you and i as historians yeah. these are things that some people out there have a general knowledge there's a lot more history being taught about this period in junior school and secondary school in england than there used to be mm-hmm. so you can go to a film like captain america the first avenger knowing something and the film knows that yeah, the film is written and made and produced and directed and costumed and designed, knowing you know that. Well, the fact of, apart from an actor playing Hitler, you never see him. No, and they reference him all the time because you're expected to know who that figure is, kind of thing. So exactly, and in yeah. fact, the, I would argue that Johnston, particularly as someone who worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because he, from the very start of Captain America the First Adventure, the point you made to me before we started recording about the f- effectively the bad guys aren't, aren't even the Nazis themselves. They're worse than the Nazis. Yes, I think that's really, really interesting because Spielberg himself said that if he was going to work on an Indiana Jones again after doing Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, it couldn't be set at the same period as the first and the third films yeah. because he couldn't see the Nazi soldiers, Nazi mem- party members. He couldn't see anybody involved in that anymore as a laughable villain, a two-dimensional yeah. villain. And so he needed... So that's one of the reasons why he, when George Lucas again said, hey, let's do aliens, <laughs> <laughs> he was like, yeah, all right, fine. Um, but I think that... I think I wonder if Johnston and the and Marvel felt similarly... You know, yeah. I wonder if they were like, well, can we really do this? Actually, no, we don't need to do this because we've got a bigger plot at play here. We're trying to explain to people about the stones. We've got we've got all these bad guys. We've got what you know, Captain America's the most famous villain. Let's what if we attack what if we link it back to what we did in Thor? You know, the the whole yeah. way in which they set up this idea that within Nazism is an even stronger, scarier force yeah. who are using Nazism to get what they want, and then when they don't need it, they cast it aside. That is genuinely terrifying and also very, very clever. Yes, uh, and it means that they can reference not things, Nazi ideas and Nazi visuals without actually having to make them be active, act, act, accurate. Sorry, is yeah. That um, I mean, one thing that um, I did find interesting when I rewatched yesterday uh, is that uh, Red Skull was sent to the Alps as an award for his um, injuries, and he very quickly says, "No, it's because I'm not part of the Aryan race anymore. That Hitler didn't want to see me anymore, so I'm out in the Alps." So, which I was like, "Huh, that's." 
one thing that most people know about Nazis is about the Aryan sort of master race sort of idea. And so they are still linking it in, but you can see why Red Skull would start going off by himself because he's been sort of cast aside, even though his organisation is still under the banner of uh, Nazis. So... You? You? Hello. Hi. Sorry, I'll need the slight mic. I'm I keep, keep getting microphone dropouts. <laughs> uh, I really need to repair the cable. I once twisted it ah. <laughs> quite badly. So, uh, sorry about that. As we were saying, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, fascinatingly, the idea that Hydra is doing things that we do know that there were divisions within Hitler's various specialised research units yeah. looking into very esoteric things. The fact that we know that that existed, that there is evidence that they were looking into some very strange things, which is why, which, you know, which, which is where you then get the premises for things like Raiders of the Lost Ark itself. Yes. You know, the, the idea that you say, well, what if that unit is Hydra or the mm. roots of Hydra? You know, what if the, uh, what if the propaganda that built the image that the Nazis built of the image of their perfect vision of of human humanity as being linked back not just to medieval crusaders but all the way back to uh vikings and you know that kind of nordic well that's what they were trying to do is um they were trying to claim different lands yes. being germanic in yes origin. exactly so... and, and and i think that and that i think it's quite clever that the MC, the marvel guys went oh yeah and that allows us to connect to thor mm you know, I thought that worked quite well. Um, so, come again, circling back around again. So we've talked about the ways in which it uses history to do its fiction. Yes. Let's talk about the things that, but we've talked about the things that are sort of extreme. Let, let, let's, 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 let's take that a step further. So one of the things that's really fascinating is that they have these amazing extreme forms of technology that didn't necessarily exist during World War Two, but which are based on things that people that that were attempted or designed yes. even if they were never made. So the giant flying wing at the end, the idea of uh missiles, propeller uh, propeller flown missiles that actually could piloted. Yes. In a, in a kind of kamikaze esque fashion, uh, the giant Rolls Royce type thing, yes, the, the limo, that thing. <laughs> mad limo, you know, all this stuff is has is is, is beautifully fit sci fi and fictional and the kind of thing you want to see in a pulp uh, film, pulp based film, but it's also some of it has roots in the extreme technology being researched that may or may not have come to fruition you know missile yeah. technology was certainly being driven by german research and german achievement without a doubt which is why there was the race at the end of the war for between the allies to grab as many scientists as possible to start yeah their own with space um op uh, operation paperclip yep which is the american one but we also had a british operation and a russian operation to do the same sort of thing and yeah. everyone was we forgive you for what you do come work for us yeah exactly so... uh we well we not we forgive you we will if we don't like what you do we will throw you back in court yeah <laughs> uh so so there was there was that side of the tech and that's very visible in captain america but there's also um uh there's also this aspect of um, the way people are, 
the earlier half of the movie, so before we get to the wild sci-fi stuff, earlier on when Captain America, is, so he gets, so he he survives this experimental procedure, which then becomes the root, as it has done in the comics, of so much superhero tech. You know, so much of what happens in the MCU is because people are trying to replicate Captain America's exper- the experiments. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Hulk doesn't is because of that, for example. Yes. Um, you know, e- effectively, Black Widow is because of that. You know, um, and I think, uh, but but what I find interesting is actually the stuff that is that is really accurate. So the recruiting fair, the stage shows, the yes. war bond efforts, the senator, you know, this, the the slightly dodgy senator finding ways to use captain the way the captain feels about being involved in this stuff the difference between the home front and the war front yeah. you know the way the soldiers see what he does versus what the uh the way the public see him you know the 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 the, the, what, the motivations the logic of it all and um, it's nice to see it not hide away from the fact of it the comic the original comic was war propaganda yes um, yeah the film literally addresses that yeah <laughs> The and... comic itself, you know, they 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 make that they make that cover literal in his, uh, in his war bonds, uh, presentations, don't yeah, they? Yeah, and the fact of he says to the prisoners, um, "Well, I've punched Hitler over two hundred times." Yeah, that's brilliant. I thought it was. I I loved it. I, that that was stuff that made me cheer in the cinema because I was just like, "You recognise the comic, you recognise its history, but you've just done something incredibly intelligent." with it that also recognises the historical nature as you say of propaganda itself but also recognises the economic reality of war you don't yeah. go to war with no money in the coffers Yeah, this is like a fundamental basic of war going back for centuries yes. if you can't afford it you can't do it you tax people or you yeah. go hey buy war bonds yeah exactly and, and that was I thought a very you know and those sequences it, those that's where it becomes fodder for you and I in this podcast you know those are the real elements those are the things that are we we you and I know are real and are carefully brought into the film so that when the film then goes off into the fantastical mm. it's doing so from a grounded place that means we our, our sense of belief or sense of disbelief if you like you get suspended sufficiently because we've seen the stuff we know is true yeah, and also you can see him making films as well. It's not just the um, shows that he's doing, uh, which were happening at the time. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, propaganda reels. Yeah, yeah. and um, you can see the audience being like, yeah! And yeah. that also makes sense for why, when he comes back, people know who he is and yes. celebrate his sort of... Image, and that's why in the yes. second Captain America there is that exhibit which um, yeah. I really wanted to go to. Um, <laughs> um, Presumably, they're putting that as part of the new Disneyland MCU stuff. Hopefully, uh, mm. America's yes. ass <laughs> will be visible. Oh, um, it's but, a beautiful, beautiful ass. <laughs> well, none of us are going to disagree with that. But c- coming back to the point about we're making about the films and things i think it's interesting that uh you can there's a really right up to the point where he jumps out of the plane mm. you know leaving behind peggy and stark without a parachute oh no right? she actually has a parachute in this in the scene he does yes he does oh, you see what? it open 
And uh, then also uh, later on when he's so, wearing his dress uniform, you can yeah, see he's actually got the little yeah, parachute yeah. badge because he earned it from doing that. It's only after that he starts to realise he's strong enough to do it. Yeah, sorry, yes. my mistake. No, don't but, worry. Um, but coming, but uh, but my point is that nevertheless, that that whole scene, that point where he goes in to do a mission effectively solo, up until that point, there's been so much realism used carefully in a fictional context. There's the yeah. training. You know that bit where the where 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 Tommy Lee Jones pulls the pin on the grenade, you know, mm. and throws it to, to make a point that is then actually proven in a totally different way. The, you know, the idea of the flagpole, uh, but then also the way um, uh, the way the, the the everything once it's all once they're out there in the field and they're trying to do and the way the men look when they get when they're coming back from defeat. Yeah. You know, there is a sense of, you know, with the rain coming down, all of that, you know, up until that point, in some ways, Steve is our, is our eyes on the war. Yeah. We're seeing the war the way Steve does. And it's only when he, once he leaves out of the plane that everything becomes full on adventure. You know, that, well, that, I mean, I'm, I'm skipping over the, the Brooklyn sequence. Yeah. You know, which lets which I, it still kills me. It was filmed in Manchester. That makes me laugh so hard. Um, <laughs> well, a lot of Marvel films are actually filmed in filmed Britain. Filmed in Britain, yes, so. they are. Yeah, exactly. Because um, <clears throat> allowed... uh, a university, the Avengers compound. I can't remember which one. It's it's uh, UEA Norwich. Yes, because I've been there yeah, several times. So that must be uh, very strange. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, it's not the only thing that's strange. I mean, get, people have got in people in one of my friends who lives near Richmond has got you know used to the fact that she can run into the members of the Avengers at any time if they're going out for a meal or something. It's quite, <laughs> you do see them down there. So um, yeah, so I think I think I think up I think I think the film balances very cleverly the pulp fiction elements with the historical elements. And yeah. I think it, when it decides to basically throw the historical stuff out the window, it still, it does it only because at that point it said, look, we've shown you the basis. Now here's where we go full blown comic book. Mm. And they, and, and that's why the film works. And they still think... sort of tip their heads back to the sort of realism every so often. Oh, and cool. then crikey. Absolutely. The yeah. whole final sequences are gripping because you believe that actually they're working at that height and the kit equipment, the, the, you know, all of the mechanics works a certain way. And, you know, when, when things go wrong at the end, you believe that, you know, that's, that would happen and that's why and how. It's very brilliantly done. Yeah. Um, oh, so... um, just as a little random aside, mm. did you know that uh, Peter Quill's grandmother is in the film? Uh no. Because uh the actress that plays his mother in uh volume two is yeah. the fangirl that comes up to Captain America like, I really loved your show kind of thing. And Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh... it's his mum and so James Gunn Gunn's gone, it was his grandmother. <laughs> right, yeah, well, of course, Gunn would. The so, thing, the, th- the thing I always forget, I always remember, isn't isn't that fangirl? I always remember the um, Natalie Dormer's officer who thanks. Oh <laughs> yes. To be honest, who would not kiss Natalie Dormer? Even if you're a straight woman, who would not kiss her? She really is something, isn't she? Uh, she as an actress. Uh, Jack knows about my 
very obvious lady crush on her. So yes, yeah. uh, no, he she even was, bought she, me she... a little figure of her from um, Game of Thrones. She was magnificent in Game of Thrones. I was really, I really liked her character and the family she was from as well in Game mm. of Thrones. I just thought that was, I was, yeah. That was an interesting arc. So coming back to yeah, I suppose we'll have, at some point we'll have to do Game of Thrones in this podcast, won't we? Can we ignore season eight? Uh, no, because I actually really there's I think some of the most interesting historical elements are in season eight. I guess. Also, I'm sorry, everyone else can go. You know, can go hang that that final episode for me still haunts me to this day in good ways. There's so much in there that I think is remarkable remarkable and i think it's only because people don't want things to end and they yeah. want things to be consistent with what went before even though it has to end mm. and actually from a historical point of view i think one of the most brilliant things in the entire series is entirely located in the final episode okay so we'll save that for the podcast. Yes. So coming towards the end of this one, then, I it's will time just for say, us to. I did enjoy watching season eight, but I still have sadness and like my gripes about it. If that makes sense, of so, course. No, we all yeah. do. I definitely have gripes about it, but I think that last episode recovers a lot of it. Uh, I think I feel about that last episode the way I feel about the feature version of Firefly, Serenity. You know, you would rather have had all of the in between storylines happen on TV so that you could feel greater satisfaction mm. but even without them you can fill in the blanks and you can kind of guess what they were going to do yeah so I it's actually still satisfying. saw Serenity first that doesn't really yeah no. okay yeah I, I got, see what you mean I got dragged by Kyrie and uh, uh, okay. so I was just like this is really cool to look at but I have no idea who these people yeah, are. Yeah exactly yeah no you it really helps it, but that's again part of the problem is it, it good though it is it makes a lot more sense if you've seen the show. Yeah. Um yeah so coming and in fact I've just thought of a historical reason for us to do Firefly. <laughs> but we'll, we'll we'll come back to that another time. So to wrap this up real or real history how real is Captain America the first Avenger in the, in its in the history bits and uh, do we think it's a good, a good one, bad one? Does it work? Does it not on that front? So, uh, Jenna, what's your take on it? I think it's about a quarter. Twenty-five percent. Like, yeah. Okay. So it's like there is some actual realism in there. There's some very good references in there, mm. uh, especially exploring war propaganda, which is such an important part of war that people seem to forget unless you're looking around a museum and you see the Uncle Sam wants you poster sort of thing. Mm. And that's how Mm. it's... Normally, you only just see that sort of side, the recruitment side. You don't see the war bonds Mm -hmm. unless you're people like me who watches all the strange cartoons. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so... And... But you have to remember the fantastical element of it and also the fact of it is setting up all this stuff that will pay off later, even if mm. it is completely accidental. Um yeah, yeah. like Peter Quinn. Uh Peter Quill even. Uh mm-hmm. which I think is just like that makes me so happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um so so you're saying you reckon twenty five percent Yeah proper history, seventy five percent marvel universe comic yes. books you know, i okay. think if we went to like agent carter series which 
was yes. sadly cancelled after two seasons. I'm like, why? No, more. I need yeah. more, please. Exactly. I think way. that's more probably 50% because it's a bit more grounded. Yeah, but I agree with you. At the same time, it is kind of... It's still Pulp Fiction. Yes, it is yeah. very pulpy. And you see her reacting to the uh, radio show of yeah. like a character playing her. And she's like... <laughs> yeah, no. See, I, I think I think I'm going to be more generous. I think Captain America: The First Avenger. I'm going to give it a forty percent real, okay, versus sixty percent fiction. And I think I'm doing that because everything you said is accurate. Yeah, and I agree with you. And that would be twenty five to thirty percent for me easily. The extra percentage for me is coming from the design and music yes. side of it because musically and so so what they've done for me that I think feels a bit more real is provide a sense of what things looked like and sounded like and i think this ultimately is the most important thing we get from showing young people these sorts of fictions mm. is we, we 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 may not show them what happened we may not show them real events but we often show them the way people dressed, the way people talked, the way people smoked yes. and ate, the textures. You know, things look and feel pretty spot on for uniforms, pubs, yeah. you know, the music, the, the, the just, just, you know, everything about it. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones has always felt like he comes from another era anyway. Yes. But, you know, the, 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 the bit where... Um, the bit where he says, don't look at me, I ain't gonna kiss you, is still one of my favourite things in the Marvel universe, because it looks and sounds like a guy, it's, 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 it fits the time period. Yeah. That's and... not, that doesn't come across like a modern comedy wisecrack, do you know what I mean? That yeah. feels like the kind of joke you would see in a 1940s movie, or 50s movie, and I think that, that, that those little touches carry on throughout the whole film. Yeah. So I would give it that that extra, I would give it that 40%. You know, the fact that he's got the compass. Is it a compass or a watch that he has? It's a compass. It is a compass, yes. Because you see him put it down on the map. Yeah, the compass he has. You know, the fact that he's still using a compass when we see all this supposedly more advanced tech around him. You know, the idea that he's going, no, I'm still relying on something I can trust. Yeah. And he's still got it right through to Endgame, so... Exactly. And stuff like that, I think, is thrilling and cool and interesting. And and it's little things like that, because to a lot of kids watching that film, if they they don't do outdoors activities, they're going to wonder what the heck that thing is. Yeah. And and that means they're going to go away and ask, what is is that thing Captain America had? And they will learn something. And so from that (laughs) point of view... I think we can be... I'm personally going to be a bit more generous and say 40% because yeah. it's got enough things in there that you might go, oh, I wonder how, I wonder why, what that is. And you go away and discover, no, that's not a comic book thing. That's real. Yes, that's and a that, compass. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, think about it. You People have, have, have GPS on their phones. They yes. don't need compasses anymore. Well, Most whole, people have no idea where anything is. There's a whole Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode about that. It's like, it's oh, I haven't ev- up with that. Um, it's only like season three. Oh, it's I should when, have seen it then. Uh, How have I not seen that? It's when Terry, uh, Charles and uh, Jake all go to the forest. And you've got them walking through the forest and Jake's going, and it's got a compass and it's got a um, GPS tracker and it's got apps and it can make me sound like T-Pain. And then he's like, oh, it's dead. It's just a brick. Yeah, I, I don't remember that episode. I've seen up to... I'm, 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 I'm... 
past season four, but I don't remember that. I'll have to go back and find that. Right. Um, uh, just to let you know that Brooklyn Nine-Nine is like my go-to background thing. Of course. So of course. Uh, it means that I've watched it about a million times. Well, so. I don't blame you. I, I, I did rewatch the first three seasons quite a bit before four came along. So, yeah. Uh yeah, so okay, so 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 we both agree not even a half. No. <laughs> not even fifty percent, but still not a bad place to start. No. And certainly um, allows for some quest- good questions to be asked about yeah, and history in the film. It does then at future effects DMCU, which although most of the films apart from like Captain Marvel are based in um our time or mm. like 2016 kind of thing mm. it is you can still you can sort of wonder what are the historical effect events that have affected them like um avengers well, you can see a lot of a 9-11 kind of issue about it what but, you're talking about is alternative history you're yes. talking about counterfactuals captain america the first avenger allows you to understand the alternative history of the marvel universe yeah yeah, I agree. That 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 in that sense, it's its own piece of history because it is literally saying this is the history of everything else you were watching beforehand. This is the same unit. That that's why it was so much fun seeing Dominic Cooper as as, as Howard Stark. Yeah, I behaving mean... like to, to Danny Junior in in Iron Man One. That was half the fun of it. Was going ah okay. That's where he got it from. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I think that so yeah. In in that sense, it also functions as its own piece of fictional history. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point. And, uh, um, all right, so we've got a few minutes left. Anything you want to add before we wrap up? Um. Oh, I don't know. I was about to say something now. I've forgotten. Uh, Sorry. No, well, we can always add it in the notes. Yeah, that's true. I can always do a little bit of a write-up because the amount of notes I've got on... Exactly. Like, the fact that he was a werewolf during the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the 90s were weird like that. And also um, the uh, jingoistic and racist version from the Ultimates was the only version that became president. But Well, well understandably. <laughs> but it's also interesting that the Ultimates version is is, is, is visually the version we're getting in the movies. Yes. But is rewritten to be much more like the mainstream captain. And again, I think that's one of the cleverest things that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done is it has made versions of the characters that I think are way more interesting than the versions that have been in the comic book sometimes. Yeah, and they've... I prefer Evans' Captain America to just about every other version I've oh, read. Oh, he's just... It's kind of like his role. Like, could you imagine anyone else in that role now? Um... And he's just—he's so adorable. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I get it. I mean, the one thing I'm glad about is that I'm glad that they kept the Nick Fury idea from the Ultimates. I thought yes. that was cool. Well, um, um, apparently the... Samuel Jackson did actually say to them if um, they were ever to make a film, he would be the first one cast. Yeah, yeah. So, and, well, that's, well, the thing is, well, the thing is, Mark, Mark Miller always makes sure that he tells his artists most of the main characters in his comic books are designed to look like certain actors. Yeah. So, like when he did Wanted, you know, the film with Jerry, James McAvoy and Angelina Jolie. Yeah. So in the comic book, Angelina Jolie's character is drawn like Halle Berry. Oh, okay. Which is why she turns up in Kingsman Two because that's kind of a reference back. But it right. was very deliberate. It was a deliberate thing saying if we ever get this film, it would be cool if. And with the Ultimates, everyone is designed to look like certain people, and they make jokes about it. So uh, Tony Stark looks like Johnny Depp, mm. and there are jokes made about that in 
the ser- in the comic book itself. Yeah. Oh, Tony. Oh no. Well, you know, don't worry. It's not me. It's Johnny. Where? Wait, wait, what? Uh, you know, when he's trying to get out of something. But just stuff like that. And but I mean, at the time the Ultimates came out, it felt fresh and radical and different. Mm-hmm. And it was a different timeline anyway, so they could play around with it. But it did go. Miller did take it pretty far. And I, my favourite bit of it is also one of the bits I hate the most, which is, as you say, talking about Captain America being racist, which is where he's in the middle of a fight and he's been told to surrender and he's beating the bad guy up saying, what? what? Surrender? Do you think the A on my forehead stands for France? (laughs) (laughs) Which is a terrible thing to say. But of course... Historically, that works right for who he is at the time because uh, of because it was going through the freedom fries era. Well, of well, of course, exactly. But but also, it's Steve Rogers. Yeah, he's from that period of time. Do you see what I mean? It, it, historically, it's like well, a guy from that. This is what I find fascinating is that because of the way. Um, Feely and McManus, who wrote Captain America, and they, well, and have since written most of the MCU Phase Three and Four, yeah. um, and and then Whedon with Avengers, but because of the way they everybody came together to work, and Evans himself, because of the way they all approached Captain America, I I thought they were incredibly clever about bringing, figuring out how to bring his moral codes and ideas from the past to the yes. present, rather Cause... than. The, the cultural baggage. Yeah, because... Um, attitudes towards France, attitudes towards Germans. Do you see what I mean? I thought yeah. that was much... I mean, they were very clever about I've it. I've seen a thing of people sort of wondering why he doesn't make any bad slip-ups with his language because obviously certain yeah. words were absolutely fine back then. Yes. Um, not that they were ever fine, but you know what I mean. I, I do. And... But at the same time, you can see it as a revisionist history because he was in a integrated army group he uh, yeah. worked with all ev- basically every single person was from a different area of... but then he also got that live he also doesn't live through the rest of the 40s the 50s he misses the whole of the cold war yeah you know he misses civil rights but when he come arrives and finds that's what happened he's like good yes you know it's things like that that make you respect Evans's version because mm. he turns up and goes uh, it's that bit in, in where he's talking to to Falcon and he's going some things are so much better yeah like we, you know, to we boil used to boil it. everything <laughs> 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 so even throughout like the more modern films they still have him going back to the 1940s so it's still they're shows, clever about it they showed that it was still an important era to him obviously his friends are gone yeah um, yeah and he has an incredible sadness about that, but he's still making the best of it. I mean, you can also see in his like apartment in New York that he's still quite old-fashioned in his mm, taste, mm. but at the same time has embraced things like phones and yeah. internet and stuff like that. Yeah. So on that note, we need Sorry. to wrap up. No, I will please, just we've say, both gone over this. So I, um, um, just very quickly. The end scene for Endgame and the the dance just made me mm. absolutely blubber. Yep. Um because it was go it was a arc that had been earned from that first event the first Avenger film. Yes. So yeah. it absolutely was absolutely right. Oh, I just and because they were my ship, um yep. I was just 
Jack was like, calm down, no one's yep. died, my yeah, god. No, no I, 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 the thing that I really liked uh, was actually the bit before it, the moment where he's on the bench and he says, oh. no, no, I don't think I will. That was, that is something that, that era of men in particular, yeah. that sense of privacy, that sense of, uh, that is where you you feel Steve to be the man of his time. Yeah. And I thought making that be his last line, I thought was incredible because it un- it showed you how well they all understood the writers, the directors, the actor. It shows you how well they understood what they were doing with the character. Yeah. Um, on which note then, we need to wrap up. Folks, Sorry. You can... No, don't be. <laughs> we, we, I was the one who went that took us over the hour. I will talk to Bunkerzilla about that. <laughs> Uh, so folks you have been listening to episode 1 of season 1 of Real History the film under discussion Captain America the First Avenger what was our final decision we reckon it's between 25 and 40% proper history worth discussing and the rest of it is just good fun thank you very much for listening to us Uh, tune in at Bunkerzilla uh, for episode 2 following this one and uh, three weeks after this has been aired you will also find versions of this to download from a SoundCloud site which we will list at Bunkerzilla Thank you very much, folks. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you very much. And talk to you next time. Yes.